Hi, everyone. I'm Heaven. I'm Tracy. And welcome to another round with Heaven and Tracy. Ow, ow. All right now. Yeah. We in the building. Ooh, we here. We out here. Uh, Heaven, what's up? What's what's on the show today? Um, You know what? It's not every day we have an interview with a freaking sitting senator of the United it's States. True. It's It's been a couple of days since that's happened. <laughs> that's what we have on the show today. We're airing wow. our interview with Senator Cory Booker. We taped this in front of a live audience at Fairleigh Dickinson University in New Jersey. Not to be confused with Muchley Dickinson <laughs> University. <laughs> or moderately. I workshopped that for three days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Tracy. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, so, yeah, this was taped about a week ago. So when he references last week's health care vote, that's what that's all about. Um, we talked to him about many things, including criminal justice reform, his relationship with a one Ivanka Trump and a one Jared Kushner. Ooh. Ooh. Um, Studio audience goes crazy. Ooh. <laughs> and one of us had the nerve to look this man in the face and Whoa. ask him if he was the Anne Hathaway of politicians. Whoa. <laughs> no, Why did you I just love set it. me up I, like I that? I loved it because <laughs> it you, was relevant. Okay? It was very relevant. It was very relevant. Politics is about perception. We got to talk about it. One of the best parts of the interview, in my estimation. All right now. <laughs> So y'all know that we don't interview a lot of men, period. Yeah, you know they be talking. It's not, you know, it'd be, like, it'd be all right at times. Girl. <laughs> um, but, you know, we we are firm believers and observers of the fact that men don't get asked about their appearance enough. Mm-hmm. So we talked about bodies and appearances with Cory Booker. Yeah. We talk about all the things. We do. And we're very excited to present this episode to you. So without further ado, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> here's our interview with Senator Cory Booker. So I assume that you are all here to listen to us speak to Cory Booker. So you probably don't need this introduction, but we're going to get one anyway. Um, Before he was senator, he was mayor of Newark from 2006 to 2013. And before that, he was Newark City Councilor from 1998 to 2002. He studied at Oxford and Stanford and Yale. And he was a big time, fancy, great American football player. General overachiever, if you will. We'll say these things when he's also in the room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I would say all this to his face. Um, And he has also handed out Hot Pockets in a time of great national distress. That's true. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Senator Cory Booker. Welcome to New Jersey. Hey. Thank you. Sometimes you meet these New York people that are just like, they don't want to cross the Hudson River they look you yeah. know, it's just very insulting we're not fancy <laughs> I also don't identify as a New Yorker so I'm still sweet and southern and very nice <laughs> so we're very grateful for your time so I just want to just jump right into it if that's okay with yes, you yes jump into it we're please. gonna start with criminal justice reform sure this is a phrase that can kind of mean a lot of things to a lot of people I'm sure Attorney General Jeff Sessions in his mind also believes in criminal justice reform <laughs> He thinks he's doing something. (laughs) I'm curious to hear how you define that. Well, I think you first have to just confess that one of the greatest sort of sins in our country, one of the greatest sort of cancers on the soul of America is this our our criminal justice system. I almost want to say so-called justice system because we have a, a system that is so broken and so so violates our core values as a nation. And just first, just think of the idea that here is a so-called land of the free, but one out of every four incarcerated people on the planet Earth is in the United States. Mm. Um, and for women, it's even more dramatic. One out of every three of the incarcerated women on the planet Earth 
are in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. And it's a system that treats you differently, dramatically differently, depending upon where you're from. And I, I've got to see this in, in, in the 40 plus years of my life. In, in the first 20 years, I'm living in relatively affluent communities. Uh, Harrington Park, my family was the first black family to move into the town and an incredible community of folks and went to all you know these colleges and universities that were predominantly, uh, again, privileged. Mm. And you just don't see people get the same kind of justice as I've seen for the last 20 plus years living in Newark, New Jersey. And Brian Stevenson says that he's this amazing death penalty defender from Alabama who says in America, we have a justice system that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than poor and innocent. You know, friends of mine, I still remember senior cut day. Four of my friends got in trouble, you know, breaking in. They wanted to buy beer with fake IDs. The place was closed. They kicked this open high school? This high school. They kicked Ooh. open the door, stole some cases of beer. Hmm. And, you know, they got caught. As most teenagers, when we do stupid things, we get caught. Uh, police were involved, but everything turned out okay. The, the hmm. right things happened. But in Newark or in poor neighborhoods or places where there's not the same privilege, if you get caught – in fact, right now as we sit here comfortably, uh, there are kids right across the river in Rikers Island that are, have been there – I'm not exaggerating – over a year just waiting for a trial for crimes lesser than the one I just described to you. And so when you see what our criminal justice system doesn't prey on the privileged and the wealthy. Remember, two of the last three presidents admitted to felony drug use, not just a little bit of marijuana, but serious felony drug use, which I can show you children that get that charge. And so while they're waiting for a trial Mm -hmm. because their parents can't afford to bail them out, remember, if you're poor in America, and that's what our criminal justice system feeds upon, the poor, the mentally ill, the addicted, and way disproportionately people of color. There's no difference between blacks and whites for using drugs or dealing drugs. Most Americans don't realize that. Harvard did a study. asked Americans, picture a drug dealer. Mm. 95% of respondents, black and white, picture somebody black. But there's no difference at all. Young white men have a little bit higher rates of dealing drugs than young black men, according to some studies. But an African American is almost four times more likely to be arrested for that. Mm. So I'm just touching on just a little bit of the broken system. But literally, we could spend your entire podcast – just explain to you how savagely broken and offensive this system is. We introduced a bill and the other uh, partners on the bill with Dick Durbin and, and Kamala Harris, just pointing out that astonishingly what we do to women in prison is even mm. more dramatic. Uh, 86% of the women who we incarcerate are survivors of sexual trauma. Mm-hmm. And then what we do to them, we shackle pregnant women while they're giving birth. We put women who are predominantly mothers of, of children under 18 – and we put all these barriers to let them communicate with their children. We don't provide them adequate sanitary products, which is a basic health need. Mm-hmm. And so women have this terrible – who are telling me these stories. They have these terrible moments where should they scrape together their dollars to buy tampons or should they scrape together their dollars instead and to, so they can call their child to see how they're doing. So we have a massively broken system. So when I'm saying criminal justice reform – I'm saying let the reform I really want is to bring justice and common sense because everything I say there descri- I've described actually doesn't make us safer as a society. It, makes, right. it, it drives poverty in our society. And here's the one thing that most Americans don't know. We all pay for it. Think about this. We in this region, New York, New Jersey region, we know how horrible our infrastructure is. Mm. The delays in mass transit in New York, you all know how horrible uh, the system uh, is. New Jersey transit started. riders – Don't get me started. Don't, don't get me see, started. New Jersey transit riders – 
you guys know how broken the system, the transportation system is unreliable. Well, while other countries were flying past us, the speed of their trains, the efficiency of their ports, the quality of the roads and bridges, I've literally had people tell me this when I travel internationally. They don't understand. You guys have let your infrastructure crumble except for one area where we have beat the planet Earth's history, the most profound infrastructure mm-hmm. on the planet Earth ever built out to do what? Imprison people. Between the time I was in law school and the time I was mayor of Newark, New Jersey, we were building a new prison every 10 days in this country, trillions of our dollars to warehouse human potential, to warehouse the poor, warehouse minorities, warehouse the mentally ill, warehouse the drug addicted. Not the wealthy and privileged, but the folks who fall into those categories. Okay. Um, you gave us a lot. and More than uh, you asked for. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I'm that's sorry. okay. I mean, it really is. It I upsets mean, me. I, I can't even sit still. We, we know this is your thing. If you need to do like – yeah, I, yeah, I might need to. I like, I, I, but I don't understand. Like in this time of Trump, everybody – Trump gets elected. We're all ready to protest. And I'm like right. there was reason to protest before Donald Trump. Right. I mean – what I think of whenever I hear somebody rattle off a list of problems with the justice system is like, can we fix it or do we start all over? Do you consider yourself a prison abolitionist? I consider myself somebody that wants to bring decency, common sense, a sense of restorative justice. I'm telling you right now, why is it that the people we're imprisoning reflect not only personal failures – but societal failures. Mm-hmm. We don't have a system that treats people with mental health. Somehow we stigmatize folk who have uh, mental health challenges. If you, so can we turn the system that we have into something that does yes, try to help? We can, or should we just start all over? Oh, well, I don't mind pressing restart. Okay. <laughs> but my, what do my you point mean is by we can do restorative justice. So look, if I just came from uh, southern one of our southern counties in New Jersey to deal with the opioid epidemic. And so what is restorative justice? I sat next to a Republican prosecutor who said we cannot arrest our way out of this drug crisis. Now, I wish that Republican Democrats were saying that when the crack epidemic hit. But but now that the opi- well. <laughs> but now that the opioid epidemic is hit, I'm hearing the right kind of idea of restorative mm. justice. And there were there were recovering drug addicts that were there thanking the prosecutor. <laughs> for for not just throwing them in a dark you know corner of our society called our prison system mm. and then hoping that maybe they'll recover. No, the prosecutors are making incredible partnerships with hospitals, with drug treatment. That's restorative justice. Do you think that this is happening with the opioid the opioid crisis because the victims are mostly white, or is this just like maybe we're getting away overall from racist drug policies? So first of all, I. I, I We've got to get to a point in our country where we can have a candid and honest conversation about race and racism without people falling into defensive crouches. Because the the challenge is we have an ahistorical discussion of most of the challenges in our society without an understanding that all the way up through the 60s and 70s, there was consciously racist policies that were creating a lot of the concentrated problems we have right now. I live in Newark, New Jersey. I'm the only senator, I think, in the history of the United States that when I go home, I go home to an inner city. I live in a majority-minority community that's below the poverty line, my median income in my my community is about $14,000 for a person. Yeah. And, and this community was created, created, engineered by housing policies that were about how can we keep minorities packed into uh, communities, pack in poverty. I mean, from redlining to uh, housing urban HUD decisions, 
Um, and you can't escape that, nor can you escape the environmental injustices that were created due to corporate villainy, people saying it's okay for me to pass along the costs of my my corporate um, enterprise to, to the public at large instead of doing the right kind of waste treatment or what have you. I'm just going to pour the stuff in our oceans, poison the air, poison the soil. So now you have inner cities that are toxic places to, to raise children. So you can go through from the environment – to the housing stock, housing quality, job opportunities. This isn't just happening by accident. Why'd you have to just, start with the things to get me all hyped up I, to begin I with? Just like, it's just like, let's just, I feel like no matter what we ask you, you're going to be so no. excited. So we just like, just let them, but, let these, them but these are the challenges. Like, you know, last weekend, my brother and I just took a walk around our block. And these are the kind of issues to just with my neighbors, with my community. These are the kind of issues that still come up because people, uh, I feel like there's this unfinished business of our country. W- what can we do? How are we going to deal with these kind of real issues? I'm curious. Um, I was reading about the the investigation that the Newark Police Department found itself under from the DOJ um, with regard to unfairly targeting black people. Um, and Latinos. And Latinos. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, how did this happen? And like, what did you learn from this experience? Because this well, happened while you were like during your term. Right? Yeah, I inherited a police department. Came, became mayor in 2006, the number one issue amongst my majority-minority city was right. stop the crime, Corey, stop the crime. And so I came in, set up measures and dashboards for everything, threw myself into that. Literally, it was patrolling street, streets with police officers at 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning and started driving down crime. We had our first like month without a murder in decades, seeing a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of success. But people were saying, hey, we got racial bias in, in the police department. I'm like – well, I'm sure there are issues. Bring them to me, whatever it is. But I got a black mayor. Uh, a a significant portion of minority of our police departments were minorities. Um, but they said, "No, you got a real problem." I go, "I can't. Can't be that bad." And then the DOJ comes in and investigates. And I had this saying when I was mayor. I said, "In God we trust, but everybody else bring me data. Opinions are nice, but let me show me the numbers." <laughs> yes. And and so I was upset. What's the DOJ doing here? We're fighting crime. I'm doing what my my community wants me to do. But they showed me startling data that that a lot of it I inherited from a police department that has a history. We are 50 years since the riots. Uh, this almost this week. It was last week. Um, and they showed me that all the data that came out in the 1960s after the riots, that there were still lingering evidence that we hadn't confronted. And so at that point, I said, OK, I can't argue with the data they pulled. Um, and I said, time out, reached out to this incredible Great leader, Udi Ofer, head of, the, head of the ACLU, and I said, let's figure out ways to partnership and do things that we can make Newark as a model for, number one, collecting data. One mm-hmm. of the biggest problems, this is why I've introduced legislation as a senator now, what I learned in my last year or two as mayor, which was a lot of the stuff we can't – the data we don't have because police departments like mine in Newark weren't collecting this data. And so this is what worries – another thing that worries me about Jeff Sessions I'm a guy who can say the value of the DOJ investigating police departments giving free, because that's what they did to Newark, millions of dollars worth of research because they came in and collected all this data, plopped themselves in our department, incredible accountability, which poor cities don't have. This is a time in New Jersey was laying off cops from Trenton to, to Newark, giving us that data, giving us that access, and then setting up a system of accountability – and now we have Jeff Sessions saying just the opposite. We shouldn't be doing these kind of interventions. We shouldn't be doing these kind of consent decrees. So are you worried Trump is probably going to fire him? I had a conversation with a Republican senator this afternoon. Um, 
you know, it's the most awkward thing. In fact, I don't, uh, uh, because there's yeah, nobody that, there. yeah, there's nobody, <laughs> I don't think there's anybody that, that more than me that metaphorically threw themselves on the rails <laughs> trying to stop Jeff Sessions from getting into that position. Right. And I still remember on the Senate floor this week, which we spent a lot of time on the Senate floor, <laughs> I had these two senators, I won't name them, but they're Democrats, and they were sort of caught in this like, I, I, I can't believe I just came back from an interview on, on CNN where I was saying they shouldn't fire Jeff Sessions. <laughs> <laughs> and and we're, we're all sort of in this weird moment where we're like, no, because we think that the – that we and it's hard to read the mind of Trump, but what we think really was going on there is um, – Did somebody say what mind? No, no, no. <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> and, and so it's more – it's like – it's basically if we, we all suspect that what, he's, what he has been trying to do is get rid of Jeff Sessions, put somebody else in there during a recess appointment that would then go and fire uh, the special prosecutor, do what he says, um, and create what I think would be one of the – would be during our lifetime, um, uh, even though I was a little ba- a baby during Nixon's time, this would be the constitutional crisis of our generation. Baby's first constitutional crisis. Yes, yes. <laughs> I believe they have that book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, is, what, is, what is life without a little constitutional crisis from here to there? I'm a big believer. Clinton was one that said there's nothing that's wrong with America that can't be solved with what's right with America. And I really believe that now is a test of all of our citizenship. It's sort of like we've been – I think our generation got very complacent where we were just sort of luxuriating in the fruits of our democracy that were born from the struggles of generations before. And our our lack of action and engagement has allowed a lot of bad things to happen, like the election of President Donald Trump. And now people are realizing that, hey, I've got to be active. I can't just hope that this democracy is going to continue along and everything's going to be fine. It really is going to take my sweat and my hands at the plow as well. Right. Um, I – Apologize for grinning and smiling, but I think it's it's you get so excited and just so hearts in the right place. That's why this is great. It's a podcast. People just, can't see me. Getting, yeah, can't yeah, see okay. Me bouncing for, up and down in my chair. For everybody listening, Cory Booker is literally bouncing up and down. In his chair. <laughs> but I'm often very very struck by how um, passionate, passionate, and also earnest. You are and seem to be. And before you say anything, Kevin's got a great question. Are you familiar with Anne Hathaway? <laughs> uh, am I f- familiar with Anne Hathaway, the, the New Jersey born and raised mm-hmm. Shout out to Jersey. Yes. Who, 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 I'm telling you, in Les Mis, she tore All up right now. that yes. song yes. on my own. Would you sing it for me? You don't think I, she did a good version of All My listen, Own? Listen, after you've seen Les Mis, like, the play, the play, you can't look at that movie and be happy about it. You can't. You know, like, New Jersey aside. But okay, listen. But you can- know how they filmed that play. It's so amazing. I've never seen a musical done. Like, they didn't do this for Rent, the movie. They literally played the music, mm-hmm. and it wasn't dubbed over. They were the actors were singing it. That's why the movie wasn't good. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? Let's have a speedy debate about oh, this I lost later. Oh, I will talk about this forever. Point, I, I sincerely, I sincerely, my I, I welled up when I heard. Anne Hathaway. Oh, bless your heart. Sing that song. <laughs> so sweet. It was so, so sweet. powerful. I'm sure. And you know, I played it. You know, I'm in the shower <laughs> on my own. We're going to get you the soundtrack. Okay. This is such a good I thought you and I were going to have a duet right now. I mean, we can, but I was thrown off by your bad musical opinions. Oh, but, oh wow, wow. Oh. I wasn't anyways, like, okay, wow. I did not know there'd be a lame fight. I feel like, okay, I feel like Anne Hathaway, she's from Jersey. She works hard. She wins Oscars. But for some reason, there's like a strain of conversation around her that's like, 
she she's just trying too hard is maybe the criticism. Yeah. I can't quite sum it up. Do yeah. you ever feel like you're like the Anne Hathaway of politics? Like people Wow. <laughs> People are like, he's from Jersey. He works hard. He's out here, you know. I just heard Anne Hathaway dissed royally. And and now you're asking me, I am like the Les Mis singing Anne Hathaway. (laughs) That's just terrible. No, okay, okay. Senator Booker, here's the thing. We are not calling you the Anne Hathaway of politics. Okay, good. The thing about... I live for the Princess no. Diaries for yeah. the record. I, I love Anne Hathaway. <laughs> I see nothing wrong with Anne Hathaway. She yes. seems to be a good actress who's good at her job, who gets awards. Okay. I would say the same thing about you as a politician, but I feel like a lot of people are like, he's just too nice. He's too earnest. He's something's off about how good hearted he seems to be. Like, have you heard this criticism about yourself? Is this the first time? This hurts. You're... This is the first time. But no, I'm we joking. Didn't say... I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> look, I, I just like, you know, look. What matters? And at the end of the day, I think all of us, what matters to me and what I advise young people I talk about all the time is to be the boldest, unapologetic, authentic version of yourself. It was one of our presidents that said, everyone is born in the original, but sadly, most die copies. I don't care what people say about me, critiques or whatever. I, I've just got to be me. And, and frankly, you know, I, I feel very, very – the parts I feel good about my life and career is when I didn't listen – to, to people that told me don't do that because it might not work out or it might not be good for your career or whatever, um, I've just kind of just been myself and let the chips fall where they may. And and again, it, you can't be in politics without getting a lot of criticism uh, from a lot of different corners. Um, and so I've heard a, an array of criticism about myself. And I'm, yeah, I'm a little bit of a nerd. And as, you know, I remember my first time sitting on, uh, I went to college with Rachel Maddow and, you know, you'd see your friends what? doing an interview and she, wait, they sit you down wait. and they call you, you literally your first interview with me. I think it's my friend that she's going to be really nice to me. She goes, you know, you're kind of a dork. <laughs> and, and I'm just like, I'm just like, thank you, Rachel. Small <laughs> world. Um, what does it feel like to be like criticized all the time? Like, how do you keep yourself like whole and intact? Like, it would make sense if you know you got tired and frustrated and got your feelings hurt sometimes. But yeah, well, I'd be lying to you if I said I didn't get my feelings hurt sometimes. And especially, I don't mind when people don't like me for things I actually stand for or things I've done. Mm. But what I often frustrates me is when I get misunderstood and people have beliefs about me that just aren't true. But again, what is it about? This is one of the reasons why I still live in that same neighborhood I'm, I'm, I'm telling you about. Is and, I, and if you go to see me in the Senate, I have a picture of the central ward of Newark, New Jersey, because I want to stay focused on why I got into politics in the first place. Um, and as long as I keep that as the focus, it's not about me. It's about the bigger mission. It makes it easier just to say, you know what, let this go and keep on uh, doing the best you can in service uh, of your community. Is there a particular instance of being misunderstood that frustrated you that stands out? Oh, I, I mean, you picked a month. I mean, <laughs> literally every month. I mean, there was there was a, you know, I'm very proud of the things I'm doing on healthcare and this healthcare fight. Uh, I have a bill with Bernie Sanders and Casey and, and and Casey about lowering prescription drug costs. But just about, I think, back in January, on the day that I fought against Jeff Sessions. There was a late-night non-binding Votorama, not the one we just came out of, but another one. There were bills that were all about trying to lower prescription drug costs. I signed on to another one and others, but didn't sign on to Bernie Sanders' bill um, because it didn't have some things that I thought were really important that later Bernie agreed and did legislation with me. 
and got massively misunderstood. Before I got home that night, I was being attacked on Twitter by people in my own party because he said, oh, this guy was blocking uh, prescription, low-cost prescription drugs coming into the country. I'm like, how could they be saying that when, one, I believe this, two, uh, um, um, I'm, I'm fighting for it already, and then ended up obviously writing legislation on it. But during that time, my staff kept saying, this is where your heart is. You know you're right on this issue, and you can't, you can't let your emotions and your moods – all of us have to know this. You can't let yourself be defined by what people are saying about you. You have to keep focused on what's right in your heart. My dad told me before he passed away, one of his favorite things was there's two ways to go through life, as a thermometer or a thermostat. And people who go through life as a thermometer, they're the ones that let what people are saying about them, even if it's unfair criticism or jumping to conclusions, drive you up and down, hot, cold. That's me. I'm a thermometer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but we are all called to be thermostats, which are people that despite the temperature, despite what people are saying about you, you set your own internal mechanisms uh, uh, to bring light and heat and warmth into this world no matter what's going on around you. And so, yeah, there are days I, I fail at that. There are days that I, I, I stumble and fall. There are days I feel like curling up. Um, but you guys know this. We all know this from our personal lives. Real courage for all of us that have fought depression or drug addiction or or shame when we have made a mistake. Real courage is still sometimes just that voice in the morning that says to you, get out of bed, put your clothes on again, go out that door and just keep fighting, keep going. I want to ask you briefly about money. So in 2013, I was pretty surprised to learn this. Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner fundraised about 40K for your Senate campaign. Yes. That was four years ago when none of us knew what a Jared Kushner was unless it was in the before lived in this area. Maybe. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Do you regret that relationship? No. Listen, I wouldn't take a dime from them now. Mm. But this was a time when they were Democrats. I mean, they were supporting Hillary Clinton uh, and the Kushner family were big New Jersey Democrats and really helped to fight against Chris Christie and a lot of other folks. And so four years ago when they were Democrats, and I'm not the only Democrat nationally that they gave money to, Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any problem with taking money from Democrats. Nobody could have imagined that four years later now. (laughs) Um, And so for for years ago and past campaigns, they didn't Mm. give me any money for my Senate campaign coming up. Uh, for years ago, years time, but but this is a great another example. I literally have people saying I'm unfollowing you on Facebook because <laughs> you are in league with the Kushners <laughs> and, the, and the Trumps, and I'm like, what planet are you are you from? Are you listening to the media here? Mm. I'm leading uh, in, in the Senate criticisms of of those folks. So that's what you that's what folks don't seem to understand. So that's just politics. It's not just politics. No, it's to me, it's more than that. It's look, it is hard in this horrible system we have. That is so ruled, thanks, especially thanks to Citizens United, with all of this outrageous money flowing into politics. It is hard. And so when I am going around and I find somebody, uh, whether it's – I can name some of these folks because these are letters that really move me. You get an incredible letter from a person giving me five bucks. Most of my contributions are small-dollar contributions, writing you a letter as to why. Or that person that works uh, – um, in in a in a in a uh, in a business a small business owner that says here's a thousand dollars because I believe in you. Now they may go on five years from now and do some horrible stuff, but but I'm sorry. Right now, with every senator in the Democratic Party, this is legitimate conversations we have. Is it a time now that the Koch brothers could just drop twenty million dollars against you in the next election, telling lies about you on TV? 
where we have lost Democratic senators that if we had right now, we, we would have so much of a better fight in, in, in against Trump right now. But folks who have got bill, millions of dollars poured onto them and they lost their elections by narrow hairs due to lies that were spread from dark, untraceable dollars. Um, I have rules you know, on who I will not take money from oil companies. I stop – even though I have tens of thousands of people or thousands and thousands of people in New Jersey employed by pharmaceutical companies, we stop taking money from pharmaceutical, com- pharmaceutical companies um, um, from their C-suite and their executives because I don't want the – I don't want my core voters to have – give even the appearance of impropriety. But, but the best thing that we need to do – and I'm telling you this is why this next um, election, these, these midterm elections are so important – why this next presidential election is so important, we're not going to be able to change campaign finance laws unless we unless Democrats can control the Senate, control the House, or can control the presidency and appoint Supreme Court justices that will actually overturn horrific uh, decisions like Citizens United. Are y'all still friends? No. I, I mean, I haven't had a conversation with uh, Ivanka or Jared really no. since the – since well before the election. What's I mean, the inside joke? No. What's the last meme she sent? No. <laughs> no. no. I passed them once at a cocktail party, but uh, not kind of folks. But but I'm not beyond working with people on the other side of the aisle. I have people that, that say the most vile things about Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell. Look, what they're trying to do is hurt my country, my state with things like that health care bill. But I'm never going to let them drive me to hate them. And I, I, one of the funniest things that happened this week is John McCain comes onto the Senate floor. The man has brain cancer, comes onto the Senate floor, and we, the Democrats, all knew exactly what he was going to do, that he was coming on the Senate floor. We knew in the beginning he was going to vote on the motion to proceed to the bill, fancy language that says basically he's going to advance the bill to allow it to be debated on. And a whole bunch of us, from Chuck Schumer to Bernie Sanders, all of us went over to John McCain, hugged him, some of them were okay hugs. I gave him a real hug. <laughs> um, I talked to him today, checking in on him. Didn't like, mention politics doing, at all. If I'm losing my ability to always see the humanity, even when the world might say that you surrendered your humanity, I, I, think, I don't ever want to be that person. That's just who I am, and I'm never going to retreat from that, even if it means. I still remember, I still remember my college uh, – uh, high school football – between the whistles, it's all out war. But afterwards, I don't surrender my humanity. But there are days I slip and say bad things about folks. There are days I don't live up to my own values. I stumble, I fall. But we, we got to get up and, and keep trying to be the change we want to see. Mm-hmm. Do you no. feel like America? <laughs> Do you feel like America is ready for another light skinned black man telling them about hope? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question, Evan. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I, I hope that uh, – <laughs> look, um, you know, one of my greatest heroes, living legend, is a guy named John Lewis who um, was the only surviving person that spoke on the march on Washington. He was considered the bravest person in the civil rights movement. He was beaten, uh, uh, billy clubbed, you know, just like a guy who was just like – just always doing things that endangered his life. He was a guy that led the march from Selma – uh, to Montgomery over the Edmund Pettus Bridge. He's one of the most gentle giants I've ever met. He also Almost. has a fire graphic novel. It's amazing. It's awesome. I'm glad yeah, you see that. A yes. I love it. Yes, yes. Holy shit. And he's he's a humble hero. And you know, he has this idea that in many ways, if you think about the labor movement in America, if you think about um I mean Frederick Douglass, right before he died, what was the last meeting he went to was a suffrage movement, um uh civil rights movement. 
Um, all these movements were multicultural, uh, multi-racial. Uh, um, Most movements for justice in the country were, were, were people from different backgrounds coming together. But he talks about the conscience of this country that, that in many ways African Americans have always had to call out to this country to live up to its values and its ideals. But I love the African-American tradition in this country because it, from its very beginning, it has always been calling on this nation uh, in a hopeful manner to live up to its unfulfilled promises, calling on this country not to treat black people better but to be better for all of its people. And so I, I hope that I can be not just another American but coming from a particular ethnic and cultural tradition, that I can bring the best of our traditions, not only to Washington, but I want to be a voice of hope. I want to be a prisoner of hope um, and an and agent of hope. Um, Miss Virginia Jones, she was our tenant president for 40 years. From the time that the buildings were built, she was a tenant president in those buildings. Her son was murdered in the, in the lobby of the building in which I lived. She could have gone on and left at that time. She and I were two of the higher net worth earners there. We could have lived other places, but she never left. And I remember on a day that I was shattered. And by the way, if this country hasn't broken your heart, you do not love this country enough. Because there is so much in this country that we sh- that should hurt us, should be anguishing, should be painful, should break our hearts. And on a day that I had, I had, I had been with a child bleeding to death from a gunshot wound and I went home and I was done. I was literally giving up. I, I thought this country – I had so much anger to this country. Uh, at that moment that knew everybody could tell you who John Bonet Ramsey was or Natalie Holloway. And I just saw another black boy die that I knew that would never make the headline, mm-hmm. would never be remembered. And I just was filled so full of rage that we swear the oath in this country. We literally put our hands over our heart and say, we're going to be a country with liberty and justice for all. And for me at that point, I had just, I'd lost a mayoral election. It was years until another one. And I just felt like, where are the people that are going to live those words? And I was angry at everybody, angry at the world, heartbroken, in traumatic shock. And so I'm broken. And Miss Jones catches me the next morning when I'm um, just feeling like I'm 100 feet underwater. It was just she and I in the courtyard between these two projects, this small, elderly, tough-as-nails African-American woman who would cuss you up and down if, you, if she saw you doing something wrong. And I've been the direction of those cusses sometimes. <laughs> she sees me in the courtyard standing there, and she does exactly what I needed. She didn't even say a word. All she did is open her arms, and like a little kid, I ran to her. This woman hugs me and holds me and rubs my back, and she keeps saying two things over and over again that just soothed me, and I've said them – for years since, toughest days as mayor, toughest days as senator, all she said, two words over and over again, stay faithful, stay faithful, stay faithful. And her lesson to me, God rest her soul, was that people who think hope exists in an abstract, oh, I'm just hopey today. I don't have any patience for those kind of folk. Hope is a, a response. It is a conviction. You can't have great hope unless you have great despair. Hope is saying that despair will never have the last word, no matter how vicious and evil uh, uh, things get. Hope is saying, I still believe and I will be an agent of hope, a fighter of hope. I will bleed for hope. Um, I, will, I will conjure hope out of nothingness. And so I don't care how bad things get. In the morning, if I can, if I can summon the strength, at night, uh, uh, before I go to bed, and every moment during the day, I want to be someone that is, that is living hope, not preaching it, but working it every single day, trying to make this nation more hopeful uh, for myself and for everyone that lives in it.
Well, the doors of the church are open. <laughs> Let's get a collection plate. Pass it on around. Well, Senator Booker, you have survived the tough portion of the day. Oh, my How God. Are you feeling? A, feeling good? I'm feeling this was tougher than I thought. Was I it listen, really? Oh, my God. I listened to your podcast and, <laughs> and, and drinking. I'm just like, this is, I'm going to ease on up here. Well, this is where that part happened. Okay. So thank this you is God. a segment. Yeah. That we, yes. <laughs> <laughs> thank God. <laughs> So this is a segment that we like to call Pew Pew Pew. Yes, y'all got it. There are yes, the there idea like, is rapid fire. I like yes. that. It's always the idea. I, I need some <laughs> friends of the friends of the show in here. Yeah, yeah. We, we did not pay any That's of these so people sweet. to do wow. that. Wow, so cute, hey girl. Hey girl. Okay, so this is our rapid fire question. Rapid fire question segment, which gets harder That's for me to say twister. every time I say it. Who knows? Who knows what these questions are going to be about? Dun, dun, dun. I don't know. All Question right. number one: If you were to take a one-day vacation from being vegan, what would you eat? Ooh! Wow. Okay, and I heard that you like to say penguins for this answer. Don't say penguins because I will physically fight you over penguins. But can I can I give you a good argument why we should not like penguins? I already know why. It's because March of the Penguins beat out your documentary, right? Yes. Well. <laughs> I'm sorry that that happened. Tracy loves I, penguins. I, she will throw down for some penguins. But, see, but I this is the penguins. thing. But you didn't watch Street Fight, the documentary. You don't know what I watched? On, I, <laughs> she didn't watch it. She didn't watch I it. Didn't watch she didn't watch it. it. I didn't. You didn't watch it. I did it. see March of the Penguins, 87 though. minutes <laughs> on, on Netflix. <laughs> and then you know what the two things I don't like? And I told this man this. I got up in his face when he came to my office to advocate for something really beautiful, really wonderful. But if you get Morgan Freeman to narrate my, like, my morning routine, <laughs> That's it was when it would win an Oscar. Compelling. I mean, like, it's so compelling. Cory Booker <laughs> shaving his face. <laughs> Oscar. <laughs> so I get so angry. And these penguins are not, they're not cute. Tread, tread lightly. Cor- you but know they what? can't fly. You know what? I think next it's time question. for the next question. question. No. And you can't fly. Hey, I don't understand hey. that. You are thin ice. <laughs> the thinnest of ice. Um, you know, the penguins habitat pun getting intended. thin. Pun <laughs> intended. Thin thin oh, I get it. Thin ice. Penguins. <laughs> <laughs> Tracy made a funny. <laughs> I didn't even mean to. Um, okay, right. I forgive you for your penguin thing. Um, I bet they taste just like chicken. Uh, you know what? <laughs> Fighting words. It, they it look like they don't taste good. They they do not. I have never eaten one, but I've done research. We'll talk about this later. I'm telling you, I've got penguin feelings that go very very deep. I can see. This. Uh, <laughs> Cory Booker, um, where were you? When the OJ verdict was read back in 94. Wow. I feel like we're in OJ renaissance right yeah, now. Yeah, OJ's wow. having a moment. So I, there's a lot of moments in American history you, I re- can tell you exactly where I was. Uh-huh. Like when the space shuttle exploded, that tragic moment, I, I know exactly where I was. Um, but I was law school in law school during this trial. Oh, snaps. Mm. Yes. So Was Johnny Cochran your idol? <laughs> <laughs> or were you more of a Darden type of guy? Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> Team Darden. <laughs> you guys are just bad. <laughs> there's, a little, there's a little, you guys have got a little edge to you. <laughs> what month was it? Because I was, I was basically. Um, what month was it? Yeah, because I, I don't um, remember what month it came out. I remember my grandfather was just know. like, what? He knew more about. I was going into law school, and he knew more about the law than I did just from watching the uh-huh. OJ trial, <laughs> and was like lecturing me on civil procedure. Right. And I was like, "Wait till I get to class, Granddad. And let's actually learn about." <laughs> okay, this. so if you don't remember where you were, do you remember how you felt? Like, do, were you like, "Yay, the juice is loose, set free," or were <laughs> you like, "He did it, lock him up." Uh, that's what my mama was like. She was like, he he did it. Yeah. So I I I was very much like the man 
did it. Um, I, I think OJ was guilty. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, but, I, but obviously the justice system worked. And I, I actually was using this as a moment talking to some folks down in the Senate about they need to understand something, that the reason why African Americans were celebrating was because you know they have a close-up experience with people getting jerked over and, and wrongly treated we by, like, the, by the justice system. Yeah. So people felt like – here are hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of African Americans. All of us, including me, have stories about being followed in malls and mm-hmm. pulled over by police, my car surrounded by cops, accused of stealing the car that you were driving. All of us had these experiences and this was sort of like letting off that steam of celebrating that here's an African American guy that got over on the system. And so mm-hmm. I understood that feeling of celebration, but I really believe the man was guilty. Yeah, he was like, it's too much blood. How you how you drip blood everywhere? Yeah, but I, but I, but you know I do think that that there was a miscarriage of justice in Nevada mm. that he was he he got oh, that he long was. sentence as of like people were trying to make up for something that happened uh-huh. before and that to me bothered me mm-hmm. uh, in and of itself. Okay, so you were you were happy to hear that he's been paroled? He he, there was no legal justification for him not to be mm-hmm. paroled. Okay, okay. What is the wildest rumor or like piece of gossip you've heard about yourself? Is it that you are the father of Mindy Kaling's baby? Also, <laughs> also, is can you this confirm just or gossip? deny? <laughs> is there some truth to this story? Next question. <laughs> <laughs> well, alrighty then. All right. <laughs> Did you at least text her congrats? Next question. All right. <laughs> so you mentioned sports not too long ago. Yes. Um, rumor has it that you were once um, <laughs> from quite the revered um, athletesman. That's not a word, is it? <laughs> you, were, you played football. I tried to be fancy. I, the older I get, it. the better I was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so since you were playing football, yes. there has been a lot of information and a lot of research done on oh, how this is dangerous a very good question. it is. I get this yeah. a lot. So like the whole concussion CTE type thing. Yes. If you knew... Then what you know now, would you yourself play? And should you have a son and he wanted to play? With Mindy Kaling. <laughs> <laughs> she said that part. I didn't. Should you have a potential son? If you were counseling a a male child who wanted to play football, <laughs> would you recommend that he do it with the risks? So uh, I owe so much to that sport and especially to my teammates in high school and my college and my high school coaches. I always joke that I got into Stanford because of a 4.0, 4.0 yards per carry, 1,600 receiving yards. <laughs> um, um, Sports uh, joke. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> um, so I, so much of what of who I am today is built on that foundation. And, and when I was at the, the Brick Towers Union right before here, there were some young kids who were being coached in Pop Warner football, and I think that's great. I think that the kind of concussions we're talking about, the kind of force that people are hitting with, that that's at the later levels where you get these um, athletes now that are so much stronger and faster than my generation of athletes were. So I, I would let my child uh, play football. Um, I think I would worry about them if they had the same trajectory as I did. I, I stood on the sidelines of, um, of, of, of Stanford football game recently. And I'm like, you guys are defying physics. You know, mass is that large, should not move that quickly. And the collisions, I was like, whoa. So I think that we have a lot of research to do to see if there's anything we can do to minimize those kind of damages. I, I give a lot of credit to referees now that will call people out for things like spearing and others. Um, but uh, I, I, I think I would let my child play. Okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> most of this the... is really my most difficult interview I've had <laughs> in a it? long time. I feel like 
because we don't game. get sports and you won't tell us the real gossip people. <laughs> I feel like you're in control of most of this. Just uh, tell us the juice. Okay. <laughs> that wasn't an OJ joke, was it? I don't flash it back to OJ. Uh, yeah, it was. It was a callback. I did that on purpose. All right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, most of the people we've had on the show are women. Uh, we just don't talk to that many men, honestly. <laughs> there are so many more interesting women. My list of interesting women I want to talk to is so much longer. I find women far more interesting than men. Thank you. Also, Amen. men get to, men are always talking all the time. We're like, we have a microphone. Did you guys Let's watch the Senate floor this week? I mean, <laughs> no, I'm honestly like, like John McCain gets the hero treatment because he voted against. That's what I'm saying. And, and you had these two other women that were like from the beginning, you know, Collins and Murkowski were not being championed. And then you had another moment where. An ama- one of the most amazing senators. She's the only immigrant, non-native born United States senator, a woman named Maisie Hirono from Hawaii, stage four cancer, you know, and she's coming out uh, of her treatment to, to vote. And nobody really knows that, but everybody knows John McCain from brain cancer. So I'm, I'm with you on, uh, we still have a society that, that a nation that is not, that seems to give men a lot more credit and a lot more attention. Here we are in New Jersey. There are, uh, let's see, uh, 14 people that represent the state of New Jersey in Congress between the House members and and the senators. It used to be an all-male delegation, and now we have one, as if that's some great accomplishment. Amazing African-American woman, first ever uh, from uh, Congress, Bonnie Watson-Coleman. So we have um, – we have a long, still a long way to go until we're getting kind of parody. So I'm not gonna, re, 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 I'm not gonna uh, sort of resist this. Uh, this that I'm one of the few men that you've allowed. But that's allowed. an honor, though. So because we talk to mostly women, women, we in, invariably ask questions about appearance and like public appearance and how women think about that because they just have to. Yes. And I'm curious. And I saw this when Obama and Clinton uh, had the first primary. And right. He, I, I mean, was, it, that I, whole. It was outrageous. Cycle. I was a, I was a big Obama supporter, but I just couldn't. Have, I couldn't. Nobody was talking about his weight. Nobody was talking about what he wore. Nobody Alex. was talking about his hair. <laughs> <laughs> Tracy McGee. I'm sorry. He is a handsome but man. But I do kind of want to ask you about that. I'm uh, curious how you think about like your appearance. Do you have a stylist? Do you worry about your weight? Like, are you worried about the colors you're wearing on the Senate floor? Um, um, how do you think your appearance has affected your career? Can men have it all? No, but I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> no, it, it is definitely male privilege that I that I don't have to think about those things often. Um, I, I definitely have female friends in my life uh, that tell me I need to I need to get some style, <laughs> not just a stylist, like get some style. But no, I, I really don't feel like I'm being judged that much on what I wear. I really I really don't. And and but yet I'm in hearing conversations all the time where women are held to a much different uh, standard, it, it, women in elected office are. And I think there's, it's really problematic. So um, do I – but however, the other question about weight, absolutely. I'm, I'm uh, somebody that often thinks about uh, uh, you know, what I'm eating and my diet and so on and so forth. And I'm one of those people that my weight goes up and down quite a bit. Um, I think about food a lot. And so, so yeah. Um, you know, I, I remember um, – this is off the, off topic, but I was a teenager, probably 19, maybe 20 years old, and I started working on a crisis hotline at Stanford. Eventually, I would go on to be a small group of people who would run this hotline. And we took serious calls from suicide calls. Uh, we had people that would do interventions for um, uh, uh, women who were being physically assaulted by their uh, partners. Um, and so for me, imagine at 20 years old, um, 
it was almost like this veil of my privilege was sort of lifted off of me when I started when, – when I would see – I mean it was very dramatic to me where number one, I would see on weekend nights, we would get rape calls like constantly, sexual assault calls constantly. Mm. Um, uh, but then uh, from eating disorders to just people calling up fed up with the environment and they would often call and talk to me for a few minutes and then say, do you have a female counselor I can talk to? All of us are struggling with things. And they often aren't brought out into the environment and, and, and brought out into the air. I often say that we indulge in a type of privilege th- that where we're just so unconscious to the struggles of other people who are different. And I think that's very problematic. And even when we're made aware of a problem, the most insidious type of privilege is when you know there's a serious problem going on, but it doesn't affect you personally. And so you don't do that much about it. And and so I think that there's a real problem with the, the gender dynamics in our country still. It's still appalling to me that the average woman – not that, that a woman makes about 80-some cents for every dollar that a man makes. I've had companies come to me. I remember this – I came out with the company. I think it was Salesforce.com that didn't really believe that was going on in their company. And then they did the analysis. They pulled mm-hmm. the data just like happened to me with our police department. And the man was like, oh my god, we are not paying women who are doing similar or the same jobs. And this was a kind of a woke man that tried to do that in his company, but it goes on uh, throughout our society. And then, then other things, we force women into circumstances. We say we love children in this country, but I, I still remember the moment in the campaign that I, I made the mistake of saying it this way to a uh, reporter. I said, the moment on the campaign where I fell in love with Hillary Clinton. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I know. It sounds, sounds very exciting. <laughs> but um, – you know, I was supporting Secretary Clinton for very intellectual reasons. You know, I'd been talking to her about policy, but I didn't really know her because I was an Obama person. So I'm on the campaign trail with her in Iowa, and I'm sit- standing at a diner, uh, sitting in a diner with her. Um, and the server comes over, and I'm one of these folks. There's a great, great saying that I love by Dave Barry, who said, says, uh, "Someone who's nice to you, but not nice to the waiter, mm. is not a very nice person." Mm. And and so I'm like eager to see Secretary Clinton in a down moment with a server that walks over to her. She's just one of those people that smiles and waves and shakes everybody's hand. But now when we're hangry, um, sitting there, uh, you know, like the truth comes she and I, I'm like, I'm like, how is she going right. to be? She and I were hangry, like long day, tired at a diner, and the server comes over. And we just start talking to the server, and and I and, and you just start hearing what this woman was dealing with, raising children, and working a full time job, trying to catch, catch extra shifts, and I and and Secretary Clinton looks at her and says, "Well, what do you do when you get sick?" And she goes, "I come to work sick." And like most Americans don't understand this, we eat food all the time from people who are incentivized that when they have the flu or something else, they are incentivized to come to work because they don't have paid sick leave. So just understand that when you're going to eat. Oh my God! Uh, I never um, that, that, that there are people in that kitchen oh. who are sick and they should be at home, but they know they can't miss a day. So she she admits that. She goes, "What do you do when you get sick?" She goes, "I can't afford to stop. I I I come to work." And, and Secretary Clinton, I could just see her getting more animated, you know. Um, and and the questioning persists. Well, what do you do when your kids get sick? And then I looking at the server. You see this pain in her eyes. And then I look at Secretary Clinton. And I see anger in her eyes. And these two women suddenly start talking to each other almost like you back off. <laughs> Let's do these two mothers have this conversation. And, and so uh, our society, we, we preach often these things about how much we value children and how much we value parenthood. But 
we're the only nation of all the industrialized nations, Afghanistan and the Congo have paid family leave, but the United States of America does not. And so – and then we devalue certain we, – we pay zookeepers. Not that that's not harder, but childcare is something that we – is such an essential part, but we devalue that. And it seems that professions often that women are doing are devalued in terms of their pay as well. So these are issues that, that I started waking up when I was a teenager or early, early 20s working on a hotline, hearing the raw testimony and seeing – listening to how one comment, one word – from a bunch of men standing there saying something about a woman um, or, or harassing a woman with comments as they walk by can stick in somebody's mind for their entire day and be yet another one of those chips at your self-worth. The same thing as a black boy growing up in America in the 1980s uh, when when often the only images before the Cosby show came on, the only images of blackness that, that were on TV were JJ from Good Times or what have you, that my parents so worried that the collective – not that anybody was – so my closest friends on this planet are still my friends that I grew up with. But they didn't have – they Harrington Park, all right. But they didn't have exposure to it. So I heard things like, well, you're not like black people, you know, mm. or, or just – your fave. Or, yeah. or, or, <laughs> you're not like the others. You're yeah. the exception. <laughs> yeah, and those things chip away at your self-worth. And, and even having a niece now, I still remember playing with my niece when she was younger. She's 10 now. And the TV was on in the background. And suddenly I'm just listening to the vial on TV and thinking to myself, my, my niece is going to have to grow up listening to this, that her self-worth is now going to be measured by her waistline or the shape of her hips or lips or hair. All these kind of things make me realize how much farther we have to go uh, uh, as a society until we start to deal with what I think uh, uh, so many people who are different, women or people of color are, are trying to deal with just in building your own self-worth, your armament uh, in, in a world that devalues you. And this is why we don't have many men on our show. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, listen. Yeah. Senator Booker, you have been a joy and a delight and a fantastic sport. We have pages and pages of questions, but unfortunately we are out of time. Uh, thank you. Thank you for coming to Jersey. Of yeah. course. To show Jersey like respect. <laughs> I hope y'all enjoyed our interview with Senator Anne Hathaway. <laughs> Stop it, Tracy. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> we had a lot of fun with Cory Booker, and he was a great sport. But, Evan, guess what time it is? What time is it? It's time to buy a round. Hey. It's time to buy a round. Hey. It's time to buy, it's time to buy, it's time to buy a round. Oh, too lit, too lit. Heaven, who or what is your round for today? Oh, my God. I'm so excited. It's so small, but it provides me with such joy. Ooh, was it a tiny baby elephant? Uh, if you had stopped at baby, maybe. Oh. <laughs> a tiny baby. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. <laughs> no. It is. Okay, so I love the feeling of leaving the nail salon mm -hmm. and realizing you did, in fact, choose the right color, <laughs> which is a rare feeling. Oh, my Because I'm gosh. always, like, stuck between two. Yeah. And I'm like, ah, oh, just go with the coral. And then sometimes when you get out in the sun, it looks different. Mm -hmm. Like, it's got, like, some iridescence mm -hmm. or some shimmer that you didn't bargain for. And you're for. like, I did not anticipate. Right. Yes. So mm. I love the feeling this is the round. The round is for when you leave <laughs> the nail salon and you find a thing in the wild that matches the color that you got Ooh. that you're satisfied with. You uh -huh. know, this happened to me recently. Really? So you have a very nice royal blue. It is a very royal blue uh -huh. with a little hint of a gold. You know, 
little, for two fingers. Not crazy. <laughs> Just some accent. Exactly. Okay. And I, my roommate randomly got a lighter from the corner store and it was mm-hmm. the exact color. <gasps> I saw this picture on your Snapchat. I, I live. Like, this this is the serendipity I live for. <laughs> <laughs> Did this happen on the same day that you yes. got your Oh, that's a sign from Jesus so, right there, yes, girl. I chose the right color, I know. Because well, I found a random lighter with the same exact color. <laughs> that's how you know. That's how you know you picked right. Exactly. Congratulations. And then I saw it again on like a little pattern fabric, just mm. like a hint of it. It wasn't even the whole pattern. Mm. And I was like, oh my God, look at the universe. Let look me know. Look at the universe coordinating <laughs> with your nails. Yes. I live for that. I live for those moments. Okay. Nail serendipity. That was a very enjoyable round. I'm buying a round for nail serendipity. (laughs) Um, When you start your next band, it should be called Nail Serendipity. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yes. Yeah. You're welcome. That one's for free. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Tracy, who are you buying a round for? I am buying a round for the AMC series, The Walking Dead, which I just started picking up again. So I left off. In this is the season. zombie one, right? This is the zombie one. <laughs> I apologize. Yes. No, it's it's okay. It is okay. So um, I left off in season four. Oh. Um, and Why? It, Why? Well. Why do you like the show? What is the show? Because I love zombie. Oh, you know what? Okay. So let's back it up. So it's your quintessential American zombie apocalypse story, right? Please tell me more. <laughs> okay. So like the very first episode, this man wakes up in a hospital. There's nobody in the hospital. There's mm. nobody in the streets. Everything's empty. Oh, no. There are like signs that like there was some scuffle, <laughs> like a worldwide scuffle of some sort. And so he's in this hospital again, doesn't know how he got to the hospital, doesn't know where his family is, he's got a wife and a kid, and he's just like out looking around. Then he notices, oh, there's someone over there in the distance. Hey, buddy, can you help me out? Classic, oh, sorry, your jaw's hanging off of your face. <laughs> no! Perhaps you're not the best person for me to turn to in this moment. Not jawless guy. Right. And so it's... <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Nobody's ever happy to see jawless guy. And you know what? What if jawless guy just wants to sit down just and... Just trying to catch a break. Just, Catch you know, his jaw, even. <laughs> maybe he just wants a little help. Oh, jawless guy. This round is now for jawless guy. <laughs> But the show follows him initially through his journey to get back to his family. And then it becomes like a journey to just like stay alive in this hellish landscape where there's no order, there's no rules, mm. there's psychopaths running around, which is something that I think about a lot, right? Because <laughs> I, know I you do. <laughs> I'm just like, man, psychopaths would like love an apocalypse. <laughs> They can just do they whatever live they for that shit. They live for the end of the world. Am I right? Am I right? You know, they always be planning for it and shit. <laughs> you know, psychopaths be like, man, I wish zombies would just come on down the street. Um, coming on down, coming down the street. <laughs> Jealous guy, coming down the street. <laughs> I'm sorry. So why do you like the show? I like it because. You know, it's actually kind of crazy that I like it because I don't like dystopian stuff. Like, mm-hmm. I don't like to see images of, like, the world after humanity's gone. Yeah. I don't like pictures of, like, abandoned, like, amusement parks and stuff. Like, I don't want to be reminded that one day all of this is going to turn mm-hmm. to shit. Even though, you know. It's true. It's going to happen. <laughs> I hate to um, break it too. <laughs> But I like it because it it sort of makes me put myself in the position of the characters. And the characters, are all, they always have to make life and death decisions, right? Me, like, <laughs> I freak out when I have to decide what pair of socks to wear every day. <laughs> or what nail color even. Exactly. <laughs> and so, too many options. It's too many options. And it's just really, um, it's interesting to see people who, even if they're fictional, have the ability to make concrete, quick decisions. Because I don't have the ability to Can't do that. Can't relate. <laughs> Cannot. Don't know what it's like. 
Um, but it's it's interesting to see, like, wow, what would I do? You know, like this newcomer who's just coming to this camp of friends, do I trust him? He says he's hurt. Mm. Is he hurt? Is he going to rob us? Is he going to do this, that, and the third? Usually I don't have answers. But in this world, when I don't have the answers, it's okay. <laughs> you know, in my world, when I can't find a sock to wear, I just break down and I don't go outside. You die. <laughs> you die without that right sock. Um, also, it's just it's just a good, um, you know, I like I like flicks and shows with high body counts. You know, I'm, I'm an action mm, person. I okay, like, you're losing me again. Yeah, <laughs> and it's also really like bloody and gory. So, so it's like I, a solid action show. Yeah. Yes, for sure. So you like it because they make decisions <laughs> and act and in do part. Stuff. <laughs> but I mean, like, it makes you wonder, like, you know, if my metal was tested in this way, mm. would I survive? The answer is no. Absolutely not. <laughs> I'm just going to stay drinking high the whole time until <laughs> until jawless man finds me. Word. Um, but it's it's good. It's one of those like, you know, they'll kill like a really big character and the Internet goes crazy. Mm. And I'm always like, even when I hate the characters and there's so many characters I fucking hate, <laughs> even when I hate them, I want to see what happens next. So it's a it's a good binging show. And now I have like three seasons left to catch up on. So I'm just living. Word. It's awesome. So shout out to The Walking Dead. Shout out to Daryl. I love you so much. Just love. Is that the main white guy? No, he's not the main white guy. He's the side white guy who is just like dark and brooding and mysterious. Not and he's dark. got his walls up. <laughs> not dark. He's got his walls up because he doesn't trust anybody. Of he and he's doesn't. Been hurt. And I just want to. I just want to love him Aww. back to back to life. Aww. it can be like it used to be, boo. And What's isn't there like a dope ass black woman in there? Mashine, yo, Mashine has a samurai sword. She's like, I don't need a gun. I'm going to do this shit yes. up close and personal. I can't relate, but okay. Nope, I'm behind the tree. <laughs> swing it, swing it. Hit him in the jaw. It's already falling off. Um, but yeah, lots of strong women characters. Okay. Um, lots of shitty, weak male characters. Mm-hmm. Accurate representation life. of life. But ain't it you know, life. Some things, even in the zombie apocalypse, stay the same. <laughs> You um, think zombies gonna fix men? No, it's <laughs> <laughs> still trash. Only now they're literally trash because they're decaying. <laughs> I will allow it. <laughs> but yeah, it's a fun time. I enjoy it. We did it! We did it! We did it! We made it! Tracy, we made it! Thank you so much to Senator Cory Booker. You can find him on Twitter at Cory Booker. That's C-O-R-Y. No extra E in there. Shout out to the pod squad. This episode was produced by Nina Patak and Julia Ferlin with editorial oversight from Eleanor Kagan and Meg Kramer. Shout out to our in-house musicians, Miss Jean Gray. You can follow her on Twitter at Jean Greasy and Don Will of the Almighty Tanya Morgan. You can follow him at Don Will. Also, Tanya Morgan just dropped a new album. Oh, snap. Yo, everybody needs to get that. It's fine. You can follow us as usual at Heaven Rants and at Brokey McPoverty, where we are still our identities. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> you can email us at anotherroundatbuzzfeed.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Another Round. You can find us on Facebook at Another Round. All of the things, we are Another Round. Uh, you can also still nominate us for a Nobel Peace Prize, rate mm-hmm. us on iTunes, leave a little review. Five stars, if you please. You know. Also, make sure that you subscribe to our newsletter because it is really good. And I'm not just saying it because it's ours. I'm saying it <laughs> because it's really, 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 really good. You can do that at BuzzFeed.com slash another round slash newsletter. Drink some water. Take your meds. Oh, my God. Take your meds. Please take your meds. It's so important. Call your person and then take your meds. <laughs> yeah. Um. What else? you have any other You know what advice? I'm not doing? What? Taking my meds. 
Heaven McGee. But in a structured way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like with a psychiatrist. Oh, good. That's awesome. <laughs> so maybe talk to your person and don't take yeah, your meds. Yeah, for sure. Whatever you do. <laughs> Whatever your journey your is doctor. with medication, <laughs> you're on it and it's okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't got nothing else. Yeah, that's it. Bye. Bye. I definitely would just get high during the zombie what apocalypse. What else are you going to do? I, I can't, can't DIY fucking... my shit. You <laughs> listen. <laughs> I'd be out there like, excuse me, what's the Wi-Fi out here? <laughs> <laughs> zombie Jack, what's the password? Is okay, that like was multiple that H's? <laughs> <laughs> How many E's was that? <laughs> <laughs>